this one casualty got like every advance in military medicine over the past two decades. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we are privileged to speak with Dr. Stacy Shackelford. She's a Colonel in the Air Force and currently serves as the Chief of the Defense Health Agency Joint Trauma System. She's a graduate of the Air Force Academy and completed medical school at Tulane, followed by general surgery training at the University of Utah. After practicing as a general surgeon for several years, she went on to complete a trauma surgery and critical care fellowship at LA County Hospital. Her interests are in improving pre-hospital trauma care and prolonged field care. She has deployed five times to the CENTCOM AOR and has led pre-deployment education and training for the Air Force at University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. Welcome to War Docs. It's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Got Dr. Stacy Shackelford here with us, and I'm going to pass it over to Wayne for a question. What brought you to trauma surgery as a specialty? I was a little late to that. Um, you know, I did my residency in general surgery, and I actually practiced general surgery for 10 years. I love general surgery. And, you know, I know when I went into general surgery, I had an idea that I really enjoyed critical care and I did enjoy trauma. I had in my mind that general surgery was more general than it really was, you know, like the old day kind of general surgery where you could really practice a more broad scope. You know, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I did, actually was a general surgeon for 10 years. I had two overseas assignments in Japan in England. Uh, my kids grew up overseas and, you know, we really, we really had a great time as a general surgeon. Really actually my deployment as a general surgeon that really got me enthusiastic to do trauma. I think most people would say, yeah, I get it. We need trauma surgeons on a battlefield. That makes sense. But wh where do trauma surgeons fit on the battlefield? All of my deployments have been to the role three, uh, been deployed five times. But a couple of the times, well, one of the times in particular, I deployed with JTTS. So we traveled to all of the role twos with the joint trauma system. We worked with all of the different roles of care, single surgeon teams that we have now, two surgeon teams, split FSTs, the Air Force, you know, GSTs and the Navy. We, from our data that we have, and we haven't talked about the joint trauma system really in, in data analysis, but from the data, the data that we've analyzed, with the joint trauma system, we think that time is really the biggest factor in survival and getting getting care to the patient. So if you have a choice between taking longer and getting the patient to like a more robust surgical hospital versus getting to them with a smaller team quicker, probably going to have a better survival with, with the quicker. You mentioned the JTS and the people that are listening may not know that that stands for the joint trauma system. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the joint trauma system is really sort of like turned into my purpose of my career at this point. Joint trauma system is a group of people who focus on collecting and analyzing data on battlefield trauma, writing clinical practice guidelines, and improving care on the battlefield. The joint trauma system is to improve care, performance improvement for combat casualty care. And we do that through data-driven analysis. 
It started off in 2005, the JTTS, which is the Joint Theater Trauma System, deployed to CENTCOM, led by Colonel Eastridge, was the first deployed JTTS director. And really, they just went out there and said, what's the problem? How can we help? And they also had a team of nurses, in particular, and medics who helped them collect and analyze data. And so that data started the trauma registry. Um, and since then, it's really just you know, gradually increased in size. And uh, in 2017, we actually were established under the National Defense Authorization Act, acquired organization for the DOD, and uh, that put us in the DHA at that time. What, what would you say is the, you know, pro- the most significant or some of the most significant, you know, contributions that JTS has made to military medicine and maybe trauma? Yeah. Foundationally, it's just the um, data-driven approach to improving care. We never really had that before, uh, before 2005 in the conflicts in CENTCOM. It was really new. Uh, we learned it from our civilian colleagues, of course, so we didn't really invent the trauma system or the registry or any of those type of uh, ideas, but copying that from our civilian colleagues and taking it to a new level. Some of the really, really big changes in trauma that occurred, probably the most significant is the way that we resuscitate our patients. Uh, When I was a resident, we used to just use a ton of crystalloid fluids and a little bit of red blood cells. And once once we made them good and coagulopathic, then we would... uh, think about giving them some plasma at that point. So, uh, and they, I mean, these people would just like swell up massively like balloons and um, we made sure they got compartment syndrome by closing their abdomen as well. So it's just, it's hard to think, you know, back in those days, like how many people probably didn't survive that could have survived. Um, we had ARDS, you know, acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, just from that. And then based on the data that we had early in the conflict, it really uh, showed that our experience resuscitating with whole blood because we had trouble getting some of the blood products forward to the, you know, the surgical team. They relied on walking blood bank and fresh whole blood. And that really, the surgeons just really noticed that the fresh whole blood made such a difference in stopping bleeding and the patient's did so much better. They actually called it the nectar of the gods, you know, the fresh whole blood. And so with that idea, they actually looked at resuscitating patients with blood products only. And even when we were using component therapy, using those in a ratio that approximated, you know, reconstituting whole blood from its components. It's actually, in retrospect, seems incredibly obvious that, you know, they're bleeding, give them blood, not crystalloid. And it's just amazing that we ever got away from that. But that certainly is the standard of care in the military and I mean, across the world in civilian trauma now. What was your best assignment? I think my best assignment, hands down, was when I was deployed as the Joint Theater Trauma System Director in Afghanistan. Went over there in 2012. I took over from Kirby Gross. He was there before me. And uh, we had help from Task Force Med. But there was really, like, no one that we had to ask permission for to go out and do our mission, which was to improve casualty care. We had a team of 30 people. They were divided up between Bagram, Bastion, and Kandahar. And there, you know, our job was just to collect data, improve combat casualty care. And it was right at the time, I still remember to this day, Brian Eastridge 
put out a paper around that time that was called Death on the Battlefield. And it looked at all of the deaths that had occurred in the first 10 years of the CENTCOM conflicts. And in that paper, there was, there's, there was about 5,000 deaths. The authors showed that about 90% of the deaths occurred before the casualties got to the hospital. And of those, about 20% were potentially survivable. And to me, as, as a surgeon, I was just like, I was just like flabbergasted. I mean, nobody told me this in my residency or my fellowship, really. And I was just like, oh my God, we are here. We're doing brain surgery and limb salvage and, you know, like massive transfusion and resuscitation and taking care of patients in the ICU, doing skin grafts, taking them back to the OR, you know, 15 times and really, you know, working so hard to take care of these casualties day in and day out. And 90% of them are even getting a chance. Like they're not even getting to the hospital. And I was just like, holy cow. And that really started us with JTS on a pathway to improve pre-hospital care. And so, you know, at that time, we started working really closely with the medevac, and they were just beginning. They had just started to implement whole blood, or no, it wasn't even whole blood at the time. It was actually components. It was blood, uh, pack cells, and uh, plasma. And they were training all the the medevac medics to do blood transfusions on the helicopters. And at the time, the medics were actually EMT basics. They weren't even critical care flight paramedics like we have now. And so there was a team of folks that went around the theater with with the blood program. And JTS was pretty closely involved. We participated in all their AARs, their after action reviews. And they they did a really, really detailed uh, review of each of the first 15 blood transfusions on the helicopters. So that experience, just working with those pre-hospital teams, was absolutely um, amazing. And I think, you know, over time, I became more involved in training more of the pre-hospital teams, point of injury medics, et cetera, working with the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committee, the TC3 committee. I think that, like now, trauma surgeon, I think that I can actually probably save more life on the battlefield by training medics than I can by doing trauma surgery. Tell us about your first assignment. So my first trauma surgery assignment was military civilian partnership in Baltimore, where we have a group of Air Force people embedded there. And, you know, it's kind of like when I was saying, like, people in the military try to pretend they're not in the military. Uh, my experience at shock trauma was like the exact opposite. You know, the people, the Air Force team that we had there, it was a team of like about 20 people, I think, that was embedded there. And we had rotating uh, classes come through every month. And the people at shock trauma were so patriotically proud that they were training the Air Force medical teams to deploy. And they were so proud of that mission that, you know, it made you feel like every day, like, wow, you know, like, isn't it great to be in the military? You guys are so lucky to be in the military. How do you do that? You're like, well, you can be too, you know, <laughs> I can find this, find this line right here. And we had to know like all of the JTS guidelines and teach those. It actually almost felt like it was more of a military assignment than when I was stationed at, for instance, my assignment before that was it, Travis. There, you know what? This is the military. No, I don't think so. <laughs> so, so is the CSARS program? They're they're team based training. What they're training the whole team, or are they training the surgeons? So it's it's changed over time. 
up until the last few years, um, the Air Force really didn't train, didn't do like um, a lot of training of their teams prior to deployment as a team, which is kind of interesting if you think about how the Army does it, where they really focus in on keeping those teams together. And the Air Force folks wouldn't have a lot of experience working together before they got downrange for the most part. And they actually mitigated that by rotating teams in a staged way so that if you had, well, the role three, for instance, had several hundred people at the role three, they would just, it would take them two months to gradually change out all this. So basically anybody on the trauma team could rotate through there, but they weren't necessarily deploying together as a team when they came through. The, the Air Force and the Army and the Navy, you seem to have kind of separate lanes for training pre-deployment. But then yeah. when you're over in theater, you're expected to work together pretty much. How, how does that work when, when you were you're kind of going to all the role twos and role threes in Afghanistan, you know, seeing all different coalition partners, different services, how do they work together? Less issues than you would think, interestingly. And I think it's partially because our training foundation is all ultimately pretty similar. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it, because when I'm on call at, at you know, in the U.S., a level one hospital, whether it's shock trauma or L.A. County or Bamsi here in San Antonio, I am never on call with the same person twice ever. It's always a different resident, always a different anesthesiologist. You know, we're all kind of like just interchangeable. Um, and we practice that way on a daily basis, which is kind of interesting. So we do have that as a foundation that our individual skills, but and I've come to kind of look at this with JTS. I think there are a few things that are really key to interoperability. And one of them is actually ATLS, you know, Advanced Trauma Life Support. It's a two-day class that teaches us the basics of how to resuscitate a trauma patient. Uh, it's taught all over the world. Uh, you can take it as an intern. Um, you can take it, you can even observe it as a, you know, as a PA or even a medical student can observe the class. And we have to recertify every four years. And this two-day class, I honestly think, is the key to, you know, a lot of our interoperability. So for me to be able to just, if I go out to a role too, I can kind of just jump in there and be the resuscitation if, if they're shorthanded or at Kandahar. I was like, well, can you guys just give me privileges here at Kandahar? And you can kind of just jump in. And even if you don't know everybody's name, you at least know your role. And you know what the nurses are supposed to do. You know what the ER doctor does and the surgeon and the medics. And so, so that is, I think, foundational to our interoperability. And I think there's just a handful of courses, like very short courses. Uh, emergency war surgery is probably one. Tactical combat casualty care is probably one. And I think, you know, my goal now is to really try to get these short key courses, you know, out to, to everybody before they deploy. So if they really have this foundational training. And then on top of that, like, you know, it would be super awesome if you did a lot of cases and did some exercises with the Army, Navy, or Air Force, whoever. Uh, but if you at least have this like interoperability standard where you have to take this couple of two-day courses that teaches you, you know, the real core concepts of what we're, you know, we all need to know. I, I think that's really, I don't know, I think that's essential. So you were the president of the Excelsior Society. Tell us about that. I was. Now I'm the past president. 
Um, so Excelsior is the society that's established within the American College of Surgeons. And before we had Excelsior, we had the Society of Air Force Clinical Surgeons, which was the longest standing military surgical society of all the services. Army had the Ratten Society and the Navy had a surgical society. I forget their name, but uh, we all had our own separate societies. 2014, maybe, we signed an agreement with the American College of Surgeons as a to develop a strategic partnership. And that really sort of blossomed into several lines of effort. And one of them was to, you know, develop the Excelsior Surgical Society. And it was really kind of under the sponsorship of the American College of Surgeons. They provided us with a, a space to have a meeting. We had, we were able to get funding just from, I think from some of the money we had uh, transferred from this Air Force Society of Clinical Surgeons and a little bit of money we had raised. And then eventually we were able to get a bit of money from membership fees. And so, yeah, we were able to just build up a little bit of a of momentum, a little bit of money. And now it's turned into a pretty awesome meeting. I really recommend it for residents, medical students. It's free to join Excelsior. It's always the day before the American College of Surgeons. You'll hear from each of the surgical consultants, the lead surgical consultants for each service. It's always like keynote speaker that we sponsor. And and it's just really, really robust attendance for the last few years. Then so what were really some of the great. accomplishments of the society when you were president? Hmm. I think uh, I was actually the second president after Eric Elster. So we had several lines of effort. I think one of them was a membership committee where we were just trying to increase our membership and get get our you know people to know about us and join the society. Um, just planning the meeting itself was a big line of effort. We took over the trauma paper competition, the military trauma paper competition. That is the um, regional competition for the military under the American College of Surgeons, sort of like the semifinals for trauma paper competitions. And that is part of the Excelsior meeting each year now. What do you think is the greatest difference between what a trauma surgeon does in the military while in the United States versus what they, a civilian trauma surgeon would do? It's not that much different, honestly. And I mean, I know we do have some trauma surgeons in some of the services that may be stationed in a location where they're not very busy. So that is actually, you know, really really bad, I think. And we're definitely making a lot of moves as the, as the entire DOD to try to get more civilian partnerships and fix that problem. But at least for the Air Force, and the Air Force puts all of their trauma surgeons at locations that are pretty robust trauma centers, either level one or level two trauma centers. And if it's not a military trauma center, they'll be at a civilian uh, trauma partnership. And we actually have three of the C-STARS programs. And so, I mean, I don't think your experience as a trauma surgeon in the military is very different. When you come on shift at 6 a.m. at Bamsey, that's basically showing up at a university hospital or a trauma center somewhere else? I mean, yeah, it really is. And actually, it is, actually it's kind of cool because at, at Bamsey in particular, we have um, Air Force and Army and even a couple Navy guys there. And so we all know each other. We at morning report to, together. 
And then, you know, what, the last two times I deployed, I deployed uh, from Bamsi. And I mean, I was downrange and no kidding, like people that I was stationed with in San Antonio were calling me from the roll twos and sending me patients. And a third of the roll three at Bamsi was, or at a Bagram was actually from San Antonio. And even like the en route critical care nurses that were transporting the patients to Bagram, they were also from Bamsi. And so, you know, it really made me think like, you know, we have people in civilian hospitals and it's great that they get that experience taking care of real world patients. But the experience that we get with the level one trauma center in San Antonio, I mean, it is like the glue that is holding, you know, that held that conflict together just because there were so many people that knew each other on a daily basis. And then we were downrange, you're like, I totally trust what you're telling me, even though you're, you know, clear across the country, it's a role to you. I know what, I understand what you're saying. So looking back at the, you know, the multiple deployments you had, would you say, I mean, can you think of a, the best save? I have to say the most awesome save to me now for the joint trauma system involves like really awesome pre-hospital care followed by really awesome en route care, <laughs> really awesome role two care, you know, all the way up, you know? And so um, it doesn't really, like, I don't think of it as just starting with me. Um, and so probably the most amazing case in recent years uh, that we took care of, I actually took care of him. Uh, I didn't take care of him until he got to San Antonio. And so this, this, uh, this casualty was, uh, injured by a grenade on the battlefield and it hit him in the hip. It's like blew his entire pelvis open, like almost like disarticulated his hip. He had a couple of like of the most awesome medics with them. And it, you know, his entire team was trained to, uh, well, first they were carrying, uh, several units of blood with them. And they also had trained in walking blood bank. And so couldn't evacuate him right away. It was like a four hour delay until they could evacuate him. And uh, in that amount of time, he got four units of cold sore blood and another six units of uh, warm, fresh whole blood that was literally drawn on the battlefield from his uh, teammate and did an awesome job, like controlling the bleeding, transfusing him. And he made it to the role too. You know, he, he got evacuated, got more uh, whole blood on the medevac, got to the role two, got a Reboa at the role two, and had damage control surgery there, and got like another about 30 units of blood at the role two, transferred to the role three, and, you know, continued to just try to bleed to death like the entire time from this pelvis. And they ended up doing hip disarticulation. And ultimately at the roll three, they had to do a Reboa again uh, for a second time to just try to get a handle on the bleeding. They had a, a third walking blood bank at the roll three, which never happens. Like they never run out of blood at the roll three. It's really rare to do a walking blood bank, but they just wanted to get warm, fresh whole blood just to do anything they could to, try to finally get him to stop bleeding. And I think he had like something like 185 units of blood products before he evacuated from theater. And I was a receiving doc at BMC. And I remember talking to, uh, to the trauma czar at Bagram, you know, he called me. He was actually had been a fellow at BMC. So I knew him too from his fellowship. 
And he's like, do you think we should put the Reboa up again? And I'm, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But he made it back and he lost another, you know, he lost his other leg below the knee. And, uh, you know, he's up in the burn unit for a really long time, got, you know, multiple, multiple surgeries. Um, but he made it. And uh, his actually, he actually is um, doing pretty well. Like his brain is totally intact. His family is with him. Uh, he's going through rehab. He has a lot of prosthetics. But, uh, you know, so that that's what I consider like this one casualty got like every advance in military medicine over the past two decades, one casualty was treated with every single advance in military medicine. So it was, it was basically the example of, um, you know, like the ECMO team actually came to pick him up. He didn't end up going on ECMO, but they thought he might need ECMO. So they picked him up, you know, from theater and flew him all the way back to San Antonio. So, I mean, literally every possible <laughs> advance uh, technology that we have available is applied to this one guy, which isn't really, certainly not scalable if you think about like, how are we going to take care of casualties in the future? But I do think that it makes a difference to the warfighter, you know, like if they're going into battle, they're willing to take more risk because they know that, you know, that kind of capability is potentially like we'll go all out to you know, for one person, one guy, just like that. Is there anything in, about military medicine that keeps you up at night? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like GTS, you know, so the Joint Trauma System is coalition of people that stay up all night, every night, thinking about how to make combat casualty care better. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, I don't think about the past, honestly. I don't, I don't like think about, oh, how many mistakes did I made or what could I have done better? But, you know, we're just constantly trying to trying to think about, like, how can we build a coalition to overcome the resistance that, you know, people that have other priorities, <laughs> God help them, you know, if they want to try to try to prioritize something besides uh, combat casualty care, they'll have to uh, go up against the joint trauma system. My latest sort of ideas are really looking at how to expand what we do for trauma into like all of casualty care. So it's not just the joint trauma system, but it's more like the joint casualty care system is how I'm thinking of it. And, you know, we had a role in the COVID response and we ended up running the COVID registry and COVID performance improvement. And it was literally the lessons we learned from taking care of trauma patients, running a registry, writing clinical practice guidelines. We basically just did exact same thing, just changed it, changed the word trauma to casualty. And, and then, in fact, the whole entire time we were working on that, I was thinking, you know, I actually used to think that it would be actually kind of nice if there was a joint medical system that was kind of like the joint trauma system. If you had to tell one war story from your military career that you would like for your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren to hear, Looking at some of the pictures I sent you, so so this is a good one. Tell us what Hi. describe the picture to us so that when people look at the website, they'll know what story you're thinking of. Yeah, the picture is not that impressive, so it's the story that goes with it. So the picture is a picture of a guy's arm, and it has an IV and, and a cubital IV in his elbow, and then there's some blurry writing on his arm, and so so I actually. 
had met this guy before. He was actually, when I had gone to some training events to work with the medics, provide a little feedback to their training session and give them a trauma surgeon's perspective on their point of injury care. And it actually was a really interesting partnership that we kind of developed because uh, I learned a lot from those guys and was able to teach, you know, teach as well. And so anyways, I had known Medic, really awesome. And uh, he was deployed over in Jalalabad and I uh, was over in Bagram. Anyways, so he's, he was out on a mission and their uh, vehicle hit a IED and one of his legs got injured. You know, it wasn't like really severely damaged. He, and so he's the medic, right? So he's the only medic. But so he, anyway, so his non-medics that he had trained um, ended up having to take care of him while he was injured. He couldn't walk. His leg was uh, pretty badly hurt. And, you know, so that the writing on his arm is him documenting the drugs that he received <laughs> uh, while he was, while he was, uh, you know, pre-hospital. And then they took him over to the role two and they ended up diagnosing him with compartment syndrome. And uh, he had to get a fasciotomy there at the role two. And so, uh, and then, you know, I just remember they called me from the role two and they're like, you know, they told me his name and I'm just like, Oh, Dang it, you know, I know that guy. Shoot. So he came, you know, he came to the role three. <laughs> you know, I walked into the ER and just like, what's going on? You know, what are you doing here? Yeah, and he's just like, Oh yeah, I'm glad to see you. Thank goodness. Uh you know, he's being all helpful. Like he was holding like the X ray screen so they could take an X ray of his leg for him, you know. And uh anyways, he he stayed with us at role three. We had a um you know, his leg was like really, really swollen. And uh, we took him back. He had a couple of washouts there at the roll three to make sure that uh, he had a complete fasciotomy. And he ended up, um, you know, making it home and actually doing a good recovery and, and uh, getting back to full duty. So I think he was memorable just because most of the casualties we get, we don't, you know, we really don't know them at all. Um, but I know I, I recognized him. I knew him from before. I, I remember a couple of 2009, 2010, we were having like a really large number of casualties. And uh, there was a lot of the dismounted blast injuries at that time, especially in southwest parts of the country. And I do remember like some of the things that are really memorable is those guys coming in. Like, and it wasn't just one person, it was like more than one people would come in. You could see that lost both their legs and had tourniquets on both their legs. And the only thing they would be saying was they could see their legs were gone. They'd be like, have my junk, have my junk, have my junk. You know, like, oh my God, that is what, you know, and just like hearing them say that like repeatedly was like, was uh, really made you think like, oh my God, this person's legs are blown off. And uh, yeah, he, he knows it. And uh, yeah, that's what he's worried about. Do you remember a battlefield casualty where you thought, man, I'm, I might be in over my head. Um, coming from the, the chief of the joint trauma system, ever, ever have a battlefield so, casualty where you thought, man, this is, this is really something else. I, I wish I had somebody else standing here to assist me with a, a good surgical hand. I've had the fortune of being at the role three for most of my deployment. And I, I will say that's very reassuring to have, you know, have other surgeons there with you to where that is 
honestly not something that I've been faced with, but like I can totally, totally see how our role two surgeons, like they are out there by themselves. And uh, a lot of them don't have a ton of, you know, a ton of experience or training. And um, a lot of them don't even really realize that they can pick up the phone and make a phone call and ask for help, you know, but I mean, it's only by phone and nobody's going to get there and, and, but they, you know, they can help with the decision-making. What would you tell the surgical trainee that's finishing their residency this year and is scheduled for deployment in three or four months coming from uh, a surgeon who's deployed to CENTCOM five times? I would say definitely go to the emergency board surgery course. If there is one course, two-day course, that is hands down the best training that you'll get for any trauma thing. Definitely do emergency war surgery. Yeah, just uh, take the preparation seriously. You know, you'll have, they'll give you a lot of uh, crazy training stuff that you have to do that has nothing to do with medicine. You know, you just have to knock it out. But any of the medical stuff, you know, that is, that is important. ATLS, uh, emergency war surgery. The Rangers, they have to be good at the basics. What are you going to miss most about military medicine? when when you hang it up and retire you know i think what i enjoy most right now honestly is uh teaching and uh working with the pre-hospital teams and having just like the variety of stuff that i do every day like if i had to work in a hospital and just like do the same shift every day for a month i think i'm going to lose my mind so uh it's just really you know, the great, great pre-hospital teams, the dedication of, you know, the people that I work with, the commitment that they have. Well, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.